Show your patriotism with the flag from the United States Flag Service. They offer premium, high-quality flags that are made in the USA. Whether it's the grand old flag, your favorite military flag, or a historical flag, celebrate your freedom with the flag from the United States Flag Service. Go to usflagservice.com. That's usflagservice.com to see their selection of available flags. And then call 1-800-USA-FLAG to purchase your flag today. USA Flag Service. Fly your flag for freedom. Now, the Jen Charlton Show on 930 WFMD and WFMD.com. Telling it like it is with your host, Jen Charlton. Good morning and welcome, everyone. It's great to have you here with us today. I am very interested in what we're going to learn today. And it really is about learning. If you think back when you were a kid, the process of learning, the educational one foot in front of the other. You know, my son's learning math and he's 12, so he's in the middle of kind of those geometry and algebra and all of that and all the steps that you go through to learn that process it can be pretty frustrating you know and that's just without any uh things thrown at you that could interrupt that flow right and then when you start to complicate or compound it with some social issues outside of the task at hand, which is learning English or learning math or learning science or civil studies or whatever, it makes it that much more complicated for a little mind, doesn't it, to learn? But there's there's a method to the madness. We're going to talk about that today. What has been going on, I think, for decades, probably back when I was in high school back in the late 70s, we were starting to see this movement afoot. And I think it actually segmented us more than it brought us together. Everybody knows my mom was an immigrant. So I'm I'm a half-breed. She was Swedish. So everything, my world was split between two cultures. And it was absolutely fine. I loved it. I mean, I love my Swedish side, my Viking, and I love my, you know, English, Brit, whatever hodgepodge mix we are. And so I've always kind of struggled with this idea of what diversity, equity, and inclusion means, DEI, because I am that. (laughs) So it's just a little weird for me to have this conversation, but I know it's important to some people. So we're going to talk about the impact of DEI in the educational process. And I learned a new word in preparing for this show, and I'm going to try and get it out. It's pedagogical. Pedagogical is the study of teaching and how we impart knowledge to others, young and old. So I have with me uh, a guest who I'll bring on in just a minute who has made her life's work being somebody who teaches others how to teach, which I think is really, really cool. And and it comes with some controversy and challenges for her, which I is how I found her. Um, so I'm really excited to bring on uh, Dr. Tabia Lee in a minute. I'll also have with me Jamie Brennan, who is running for the Board of Education here in Frederick County. But you could imagine Jamie could represent anybody across the country 
who's running for Board of Ed because they have a passionate commitment to making sure that the knowledge that we impart to our children is what they need and is appropriate. I think that's a pretty universal belief. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, who really, I don't care anymore, it's irrelevant. It's whether you're somebody who wants to infuse certain ideological issues to complicate the study of things for these young kids that just really complicates the issues. So I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll have with me Dr. Tavia Lee calling in from the West Coast and Jamie Brennan, candidate for Board of Education right here in Frederick County. We'll be right back. When was the last time you had freshly made ice cream or candy? Sweeties on the Creek offers a wide selection of fresh, creamy ice cream made with natural flavors. Stop in for a new fun flavor or a classic yummy favorite perched on a freshly made waffle cone. Just in, Sweeties has a huge assortment of candy, including freshly made in-store delicious chocolates. Your young ones will love all the plush toys and fun gifts, too. Sweeties on the Creek, just up for Market Street. We're scooping now. Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. Welcome back. So today we're talking about education. And I wanted to start with laying the groundwork for something that we all have become way too familiar with called indoctrination. So I... I said, well, let's see what Google says. Not that we should be trusting Google because they've done enough damage, but let's just see what they say about what indoctrination means, okay? So they say the term indoctrination typically means to instruct or to teach. It can be understood as teaching or inculcating a particular set of beliefs, ideas, or attitude on an individual or a group without allowing any possibility of question or challenge against it. That sounds a lot like propaganda. It's a one-way ticket to you will believe what I say or else. And I think that's a lot of what the issues are that we're facing right now, if you really sum it all up. And I remember one time being in, in a, actually an adult training, and the woman in front of the room and this is supposed to be nonpartisan, nonpolitical, it's transformational work. It really had no business for her to bring up her beliefs at the time about George W. Bush. So it's an inappropriate infusion of a person's viewpoints, ideas, political leanings, or whatever, social mores into the educational process. And it's totally, totally inappropriate. And it really starts to cross a boundary, in my view, which is you're now you're stepping on parental control. You're stepping into my family values. You're starting to get into something that you are not paid to do, and you need to stand down. All right, let's, um, or as they say in government, get out of my lane. So let's bring on Dr. Tabia Lee, and I want to give a little background about her because I think it's important to understand 
the important work that she's done. So she's a lifelong educator and the founding member of Free Black Thought. She's also a senior fellow for Do No Harm Medicine, which I'm very interested in, and is the director of the Coalition for Empowered Education. And if you want to follow her work, you can go to the website, empowered-ed.org. That's empowered-ed.org. And so she has contributed to the design, implementation, and evaluation of numerous educational and professional development programs. All right, so let's bring on Dr. Lee. Good morning and welcome to the Jen Charlton Show. It's such a pleasure and honor to have you here today. Thank you, Jen. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. It's great. And I, I found you somehow, you know, I, I believe sometimes it's divine intervention. God sends somebody across my path. And when I was dealing with several weeks ago, and that's when I originally reached out to your team, um, when I was dealing with the issues around what's going on with the um, impact on the campuses of the up, uprisings against what had happened on October 7th, in other words, in favor of the Palestinians, it was quite shocking to me. And I, 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 I found your, your piece and you've been dealing with this. So let's, let's start with your background and, and why are you controversial right now or involved in a controversy around this educational system and process? Could you give us a little bit of background? Yes. Um, so I'm a lifelong educator. Um, as you mentioned there, um, I sometimes joke around that I've been teaching for as long as I've been in school because when I was in school, <laughs> I was in a, a gifted and talented program uh, in elementary school, and we were often utilized as, as peer tutors <laughs> because the teachers didn't know what to do with us. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how I started my interest in, you know, learning, helping others to learn. But, of course, I ended up getting formal education and, um, you know, going into the teaching field, um, and I taught for over a decade in East Los Angeles public middle schools. Um, I taught gifted English language learners um, English, social studies, and civics. Uh, I was a national board certified teacher in English, and then I loved the process so much that I did it again and became national board certified in social studies. And I also developed a civic education program when there wasn't any um, because, you know, some of my research in my um, master's program involved looking at civic competency of teachers and students alike. And I found dismal levels, uh, and this is in the 90s, <laughs> uh, on both sides, like uh, as in the adults and the students not being able to even say who the mayor of their city was, like a basic <laughs> civic, uh, you know, understanding and awareness. Um, and during that time, I also did teacher development and training. So uh, I'm someone who, when I learn something new, I like to share it with others. Um, and this was uh, in California during the English-only movement. And so during that time, uh, for gifted English language learners, some teachers held biases that um, if a student didn't speak English or if they weren't English language proficient, they couldn't possibly be gifted. So I was breaking down, you know, those kinds of um, biases from teachers and helping them understand giftedness as a neurodiversity um, and, you know, the unique needs that gifted children have. Um, and I was passionate about that, as I mentioned, because I was 
a gifted child uh, growing up. Um, and, you know, I had inadequate uh, teaching uh, and learning uh, experiences. And I also accelerated through school um, by attending my uh, local community college. So I was um, one of the early, what they call now, dual enrollment students. And I graduated from high school two years early because I had taken so many um, credits at my community college that I, you know, made two years worth of work out of that. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's funny now seeing how things have evolved. Um, I went outside of the U.S. for the first time uh, after getting my doctorate, and my doctorate is in educational leadership and administration. Um, and I traveled to many of the places that I had always taught my students about but never gotten to go to. Um, and then I came back, and the jobs weren't beating down the door like I thought they would. Uh, so I spent many years adjunct teaching. That's part-time teaching um, in private Catholic universities. Um, and, again, teacher training, teacher development, um, helping. I was a teacher educator at that time um, in official capacity. And during the pandemic, I finally had my first breakthrough uh, with a tenure-track position uh, in the community college system. The first one was a, a temporary one-year position. Uh, and then when that ended, I found another position at uh, De Anza College. And that was to serve as a faculty director for an Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education. And I went through a very rigorous process there to get hired on. And I, I even did teaching demonstrations, multiple panel interviews, um, and they selected me. Uh, I was honest about who I am and my approach. And they were honest about their needs. Uh, but really, Jen, as soon as I began the work there, um, it was instant um, that there was a, an issue and some people did not want me to be there. Um, and they made it very clear to me uh, that they perceived me as um, someone who was a threat to their what they called the equity progress that the school had made. Um, and as I did my needs assessment conversations, because I'm always someone who takes an a, a inquiry-based approach, uh, multiple people, you know, did advise me that there were some problems that they um, felt the, the school had and they hoped that I would address that no one had ever addressed, uh, one of them being anti-Semitism, deeply entrenched anti-Semitism, um, and the other being just the lack of um, co collegial conversation around different viewpoints. Um, and that was mentioned multiple times by, I did over 60 hours of these needs assessment conversations. Um, and I quickly discovered what they meant um, as I started to, you know, do my work around bringing people together because I wanted to know, people use words all the time and words like equity, um, social justice, you know, and I wanted to know what was, what were the various definitions at work on the campus and then how could we, from those diverse and potentially divergent, you know, definitions, um, develop a common definition that we could best serve our students with? Um, and as I started to do that work, my tenure review committee um, began to immediately attack me um, for purely ideological reasons. And they, and they stated that what the work I was doing was wrong. Um, I was leading people to danger. I was told that I was citing the wrong scholars and I should watch who I cite. Um, I was told that the way that I compared different ways of thinking about race and ethnicity um, using the scholarship that was out there was, um, was wrong for me to do, 
and that I was uh, potentially harming people by getting them to think critically about what they called anti-racism, and I just really wanted to know what they meant uh, when they were saying it. Okay, so, so let, me, um, let, me, let me stop you there because, wow, there's so much to tackle. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, the first thing I would say, and I'm getting some feedback, I don't know what that is, but um, the first thing I would say is the idea of social justice and equity and the fact that you're looking at what does that really mean because that's interpreted right my version of it is based on my social uh experiences and would be different than somebody who maybe grew up in russia you know they have a different social experience so what does that look like and i think that's really cool that you did the needs assessment i've done some um work around needs assessment and how important they are. And the one thing we know about needs assessment, it is a science-based approach to understanding the needs of people. Is it not? Oh, yes. Right. Right. So if we're doing a science-based approach, which is, you know, if we've heard anything over the last three years of COVID hell, we've learned that we must be science-based, even though they weren't and they didn't. They used it as a way to try and conform people to something. Right. And yet you use the science based approach and you were condemned for it. So I wanted to make sure I pointed that out. Um, You know, the other notion that you were using the wrong scholars, the wrong scholars. Well, to say somebody's a scholar means that they have some value (laughs) to contribute. And you can't have a wrong one if you're teaching people thought. Is that am I am I missing something there? Yeah, and and that's what you know when when the tenure review committee member brought that to my attention and said, "Watch who you cite." I said, "Pardon?" <laughs> I said, "You know, um, I'm a scholar, and what I do when I I read across the board, across the spectrum, I read a wide variety of sources when I'm learning about something, and what I like to do is give people a detailed." bibliography so they can then go and trace my steps and do, and read those sources themselves um, and 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 see did I make valid conclusions you know were my interpretations on par with what the people actually said and then it's just a learning resource for people you know uh, to expand their horizons and I was told you know that's that that was not appropriate to do um, I was told that I needed to be citing more BIPOC scholars and BIPOC means black indigenous people of color so then I did an absurd thing with this person who was telling one my tenure review committee member so this is who decides if you continue on you know I I went through my 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 reference list that they were referring to and I said well look at the people who are here is a wide variety of people if we want to look at it that way I said you know I have here John McWhorter I have you know um, uh, John Dewey you know other scholars in the education field um, and I said you know what's wrong with that and they said that, that that's not BIPOC representation and I said, well, John McWhorter, it was his book, Woke Racism, that I cited. I said, he's a black man. And they said, no, he's not. He's a right-wing extremist, and, he, and, and his viewpoints aren't welcome here. And I said to them, I said, you know what, that, that sounds preposterous to me. I said, I absolutely will not censor who I'm citing um, and, and not share works that I found to be enlightening with other people so that they can learn from them as well. Um, I, I think that's an unreasonable thing to ask of me. 
And so, you know, this is how I uh, got an, a label early on of being uncooperative. Um, and it's not that I wasn't cooperating, um, Jen. I, I, I just didn't feel that as a faculty member with so the whole reason why I became a, prof a professor and a faculty member was so that I would have academic freedom and be able to talk to people about diverse viewpoints and have people consider and think about them. So to have things like that early on in the stages uh, of this process uh, being stated to me and, and as expectations, I thought they were unreasonable. I thought they flew in the face of what academic freedom is. Gotcha. That's, I love the term academic freedom. Boy, is that brilliant. I want to understand now the challenge that you're in because you have sued, if I'm not mistaken, you have a, a legal action against that college. Can you tell us about that? Um, yes. So I am so thankful uh, for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Um, that it, Sometimes I call them FAIR and other people do too. Um, they have been with me since the beginning of this journey. So this, this, um, these issues and, and problems of freedom expression and, and, and academic freedom, um, they went on for two years at De Anza, uh, before I was terminated, um, you know, completely um, and not able to go back in, in this next year, at this current academic year and teach anymore. Um, and FAIR was with me from the beginning. Um, they, they raised, they sounded the alarm, you know, of the um, unfairness of the process, that there was obvious bias taking place. Um, and uh, they stayed with me from the beginning of this, and they're still with me now um, as this, you know, I guess what people have told me is it'll be a protracted legal, you know, battle. Um, so I'm just at the beginning of that. Um, and without their help, you know, I wouldn't have had the funding or the means you know, to battle against this huge system um, and, you know, their unlimited resources. Uh, so I've just been so thankful for FAIR uh, being there as, you know, an advocate for my civil, civil liberties and, and others. Um, and I actually discovered FAIR because they were involved in, you know, some of the things that took place uh, at De Anza, again, uh, around DEI. Um, I, I had never heard of FAIR uh, prior to working at De Anza. Um, and when I joined in, you know, I was a faculty member, so I immediately joined my teacher union. I've always been a strong unionist until recent events. Um, and uh, okay, hold on. Bef on the before you go on, yeah. has the union supported you? Um, I've been very disappointed with what took place at De Anza, not just to me, but other people who advocated with me. Um, have also been terminated, um, and the union offered none of us any form of um, tangible support when we were at threat of losing our jobs and, and since we've lost our jobs. Okay, there you have so it. You I'm not a fan been, of the unions. I've been outspoken against them. I think that they have... They have manipulated and controlled this educational system, and and your your case is is a prime example of where they have they have not stood up for what I think you paid your dues for. So I mean I don't know why you paid your dues, but I think that's the promise they give you is that we're there for you, and apparently they're not. Let's. Let, I'm sorry I cut in. So what what else did you want to add to that? So yes. That, that, I mean, you kind, of, you kind of summarized it right there. Um, you know, when I came in, my, my union president, the union president um, there, asked me to locate a non-woke uh, DEI program. 
And so I immediately began to work on that. Um, they said they wanted it to be, um, you know, not the woke stuff that my office usually would do, because this was something that was stated even in my interview process, that my the office I would be potentially working for was a little too woke, and I made them define what they meant by that. Um, and so... Um, the union president asked me, find a non-woke thing because the chancellor of the whole community college system, 116 schools, was demanding that every school make an anti-racism and DEI policy, and that included the unions. Everyone at working in the environment would have to be in compliance, and he wanted to get ahead of the curve. So what I found when I looked at that, Jen, I tried to find a non-woke DEI, um, you know, company based on, you know, what he told me he wanted to see. He wanted it to be somewhere where all the teachers could feel comfortable. You know, no one felt like they were being called a racist. There was not this talk of implicit bias and all these other things. He didn't want that in the union training. Um, and as I started to survey, uh, company after company and consultant after consultant, I discovered this was a multi-billion dollar industry. And then I discovered that there wasn't, I couldn't find a company that was doing a non-woke approach to this to this topic. I discovered Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Uh, they were the first one that I found that had a DEI training program um, where they talked about cognitive bias. So to me, that's a sound construct uh, when you think of um, implicit bias and cognitive bias. Uh, they're very different. <laughs> so, and I said, oh, this is the first one who's doing this novel approach. And they talked about a pro-human way of looking at things. And so I brought it to my union president. Um, and he, you know, said, wow, okay, that looks interesting. We met with the fair professional development folks, and they said, well, you know, we're just getting started up. You all are a school, so we'd be willing to bring this in for free. So me and him were both like, okay, this is sounding even better, right? We don't even have to pay. And so we brought this to our executive council, which I was a member of my first year, and I, you know, immediately active in the community. And as we were talking about it, for the first time ever, from what he told me and what others told me after, um, someone jumped onto their smartphone and they were looking up FAIR and who is it. And immediately people became enraged and they said, did you look at the board of advisors for this organization? They said, oh my gosh, these are like right-wing people. Um, they're extremists. You know, they're, they're people who are like John uh, McWhorter, Steven Pinker, and they were just like naming off names. And, and we tried to explain to them, like, wait, that board of advisors isn't coming to our campus. You know, who's going to come is this guy called Daryl Davis. And he's done some amazing work where he's helped even, like, avowed Klan members to, you know, give up that, that way of thinking and to become a more pro-human and compassionate person who's able to listen and talk to different diverse people. And they wouldn't have any of it. They said over so our dead bodies, this was a statement shocking. that was made, will we, will we ever have anyone or anything associated with that organization on our campus? Well, so that's Lee where the cracks came in with the union. <laughs> I got it. And we're going to go to a break right now, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to complete that. It's very important. People can go to fair for all. That's dot org to learn more about this organization. More with Dr. Tabia Lee when we get right back. Show your patriotism with a flag from the United States Flag Service. They offer premium, high-quality flags that are made in the USA. Whether it's the grand old flag, your favorite military flag, or a historical flag, celebrate your freedom with the flag from the United States Flag Service. Go to usflagservice.com. 
that's usflagservice.com, to see their selection of available flags. And then call 1-800-USA-FLAG to purchase your flag today. USA Flag Service, fly your flag for freedom. Welcome back. It's great to have everybody with us. And, you know, we're in the throes of trying to sort out sanity from insanity. I mean, when you look at the fact that Dr. Lee has been facing what she's been facing as somebody who's just dedicated her life to making a difference in educating educators so they can educate our kids and we can grow as a nation, and, and you know, and I'm thinking to myself, how on earth did they lose track so far off purpose from their mission like the teachers union? You know, to to start saying so-and-so is woke, you know, it's just, I don't like that term and I've said it to everybody who will listen. I, I'm, I don't think it says anything. It, for me, it doesn't quite capture the severity of the situation because... It sort of trivializes it, if that makes sense. So good morning. Welcome back, uh, Lee. It's great to have you with us. And I know you uh, you go by Lee, so I'm going to call you informally Lee. Um, so when you, we talk about, you know, this notion of woke and, and the educational system, I've got Jamie Brennan here who's running for Board of Education. And I think this is a conversation that could really be rolled out across the country to anybody who's running for the Board of Ed with an interest to impact and, frankly, realign the mission and the actions so that they're doing what they're meant to do and they're not doing things like trying to indoctrinate, as we defined it earlier, people into a particular ideology and you know, and I was listening to one of your interviews with somebody else. She did a nice job where, where you know, you talk about this goes back many decades. Could you talk about how far back do you think this indoctrination process goes? Well, uh, there's different scholars who, who say different things. Um, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to take a look at Yasha Monk's uh, work on the identity trap. It was recently released. Um, and he does a pretty thorough um, positing of where this started and how, and, 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 and you know, he calls it an intersection between postmodernism and decolonialism, you know, and all these other critical theory as well. Um, and I think that it's something, for me, the extremist aspects of it, though, um, really go back to, you know, some of the activism of groups like um, Weather Underground, you know, um, domestic terrorists who, who, you know, ended up being uh, broken up by our law enforcement, federal law enforcement agencies. And many of those people that were out in the streets, you know, um, bombing things and, um, you know, attempting to advance their worldview um, through, through, through violent means, uh, they then went into teaching. And they became professors. Um, they became professors at San Francisco State University and, and others. I'm talking about William Ayers and others like that. 
Um, and they began planting their seeds in teacher education programs as well. Um, so that's one for me um, that, that's a big one that talks to, you know, where this critical social justice ideology started to get into our higher education systems. When those individuals that were part of those violent movements, um, you know, uh, uh, of people classified as domestic terrorists, you know, attempting to advance social change by any means necessary, went into the education field. Um, and they became professors of education and, and many times at public institutions on the public dime, ironically. Um, and we're seeing the fruits of their labor in our streets today. Um, you know, these pro-Hamas protesters that, and, and rallies that we're seeing um, around the nation, they're not coming out of the blue. They, these students have been taught, these individuals have been taught uh, to view the world in a certain way, and I call it critical social justice ideology. It's distinguished from what I would say is a more classical social justice approach, which, you know, prior to my engagement with uh, the California Community Colleges, I had always worked from a classical approach. I thought that's what everyone was doing. Um, but I quickly discovered that, that we weren't all meaning the same thing um, and that there was a very distinct form of social justice, which, uh, which is I call the critical social justice approach, and that it's very different from a classical one. So in that approach, are they not, in fact, infusing the educational system with a political agenda? I would say a political as well as social agenda, um, definitely, and and that's what's so um, toxic. They've been able to fly under the, the radar for many years, but now we're seeing, you know, what what comes of that approach in, in our streets and, you know, on our news when we flick on the news, you know, in, in the evening and, and see these these uh, things that are taking place. And I, I say that, uh, Jen, because, you know, under this viewpoint. Everyone in the world has to be classified as a victim or an oppressor, and um, they they really focus on that. So this is where you'll you'll hear terms like systemic racism, um, you know, oppression, uh, privilege. Um, all of these kinds of concepts are coming out of the, these disciplines, and it used to be a fringe on the campus, right? You would only hear about these kind of things in like your ethnic studies departments or your gender studies departments. Um, but what we've seen is a, a mass um, seizing of institutions where everyone is, you know, um, now supposed to work under these ideologies. Um, and even where things are being rewritten, like whole teacher trainings and curriculums are being rewritten and, and, and revised to align with a critical theory approach or a critical social justice approach. Um, even in our medical schools, uh, our doctors and, and you know, uh, medical trainees are being taught that you know, their role is not to provide competent you know, um, compassionate care, but to be a social justice warrior, you know, and to make change and to fix the, the ills in society, you know, instead of focusing on the individual patient. So we're seeing every discipline flooded with this. Um, our houses of worship, you know, some congregations have even adopted these DEI policies that are infused with this critical social justice ideology. And, you know, a lot of people um, don't understand, I think, uh, when they're doing this, they think that they're they're doing something noble, right? I mean, when I, I want the world to be fairer and things of that nature, but they're not well, underlying, looking at what underlies it. They're not 
then here's the thing about it. They're what what they're using, and I'm a communications expert, so what they're using is language to mischaracterize something. They, it's a misnomer. What they call social mm-hmm. justice is anything but that. So mm-hmm. you know, you're, you, the whole DEI thing has been flipped on its head. It's really not about diversity anymore. It's about a political. Uh, agenda. You were the director at this school that you're now um, uh, in a legal battle against. Tell us about the role you had there. So my role there was to lead an institution-wide transformation around those three topics of equity, social justice, and multicultural education. Um, and it also spoke about the anti-racism um, initiatives that were, you know, beginning to um, at, at their beginning stages when I started in 2021. Um, and, you know, I was supposed to help uh, improve teaching and learning, support faculty, um, you know, with, uh, with those topics and, and in ways of teaching and learning and to, ver- to diversify their approaches, you know, so we reach a, a wider uh, swath of students and we can actually support, you know, all students. One of my primary charges was to increase inclusion on the campus. And to me, that means where everyone feels welcomed. Um, and so that's why when, I, when we started to hear from segments of our community, um, like the Jewish community, who came, um, we had representatives come in and say, you know, the campus, um, it just doesn't feel safe for Jewish students. And they gave multiple examples, you know, supported by the data and evidence. And they asked us if we would, you know, make some simple changes and um, make it a a more inviting place for Jewish students specifically. And when we took those recommendations back from the community members and the response from my team, uh, I I didn't anticipate the things that they were saying and doing. They said we didn't need to address anti-Semitism. It wasn't important. Um, they said that Jewish people were white oppressors, and um, so we weren't going to focus on them. Instead, we needed to focus on decentering whiteness. You know, and I pushed back and I said, "Oh, do you, do you understand that the Jewish people, it, the diaspora, is is very <laughs> ethnically uh, diverse? Um, and you know, it, it's um, how can you call them white oppressors? Like that makes no sense. It doesn't align with historical fact." Well, because um, that's, again, they mischaracterize and, mis- and it's a misnomer. And that's how they use language to manipulate and deceive. And it's disgusting. It really is disgusting. And I'm sorry that you're going through that. I want to shift now uh, to Board of Education. You were on the Board of Education, correct? Yes. Yeah, so in 2020, I was elected to as a, a school board um, member in a small district, K through 12 district um, here in in California. Yes. What advice do you give to somebody who's interested? And we've got a lot of people listening, so it could be anywhere in the country. What are the things that you think they need to do to be effective as a board of education member and frankly, in campaigning for it? Because. In our district, we tend to be, we thought we were more conservative. It's shifted a little bit, but it's really owned by the left. They run their Apple, you know, uh, list and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's a highly politicized, even they, even though they say it's nonpartisan. So what do you suggest for, for people who just want to get involved and take back their educational system for the parents? 
Well, first, anyone who's considering running and, and serving in that capacity, I would just say um, I'm really proud of, of, of that individual, and um, all of your community members will be as well because you've seen the importance and the value of education. Um, as a school board member, what do I wish I had known when I started? Um, and, and this is for me, keeping in mind I've been in education my whole life and teaching, and, you know, I, I thought I was pretty well versed in this stuff. Um, there's a whole politics behind uh, school boards. Um, your school board association, and this is a national thing, so California has one, Virginia, Maryland, everybody, um, they work for the larger power. And unfortunately, many of those have been ideologically captured. And so they'll recommend policy to you um, that's already infused with, 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 you know, some of the indoctrination we're seeing in education. Um, often uh, they work very closely with the superintendents. And as a board member, you are <laughs> charged with being the supervisor of the superintendent. So if you look at the structure of your board meetings, um, you know, if it's a dog and pony show all the time, patting ourselves on the back about how great we are uh, when we have these dismal achievement levels of our students uh, across the board, no matter what their, you know, check boxes are, um, that's problematic. Uh, legal counsel generally works very closely with the superintendent again. Um, I would suggest, you know, um, taking a look at the structures. How does your board function? Um, if, are you really acting as a supervisor of that superintendent or are you rubber stamping, um, you know, something, opinions and, and so forth, uh, policies and practices that are coming down from those superintendent associations and those school board associations? Look for alternatives. Um, I just recently did a presentation at the School Board Member Alliance of Virginia. Um, that's being led by Sherry Story. She's simply amazing. Um, helping the school board members to understand what are their roles and responsibilities. Why do you need to know the law in your, you know, state? Um, and how does knowing the law help you be a more effective uh, school board member? Why is accountability so important? Um, why is the structure and, and, you know, how your meetings flow so important? And then, two, we often think we're going to change the world, but if you don't have a majority on your board, that's very hard to do. And you can find yourself, if you have a differing opinion, being um, put as an outsider, even on your governing board, and not able to make any changes because the majority simply won't allow it. So I would say know things like the law, um, know what accountability is, know the role and purpose, and get into alternative organizations from these mass big box school board associations, which are there to maintain the prevailing order. Um, if you're looking to change things, you have to, to break free from that um, and, and, and really do what your constituents are counting on you to do. Um, you know, that's why they elected you. They, they wanted to see some change. They, they liked what you said in your campaign. It's just the how do you get around the various barriers um, to do that uh, is, is, is something that I wish I knew, you know, from, from the beginning. I wish I had a school board member alliance to support me, you know, as, as a beginning board member, and I would have known about things like board majority, you know, dynamics, um, superintendents who really overreach and, um, you know, basically act like, like the governing board is there as their assistants, you know, or their cheerleaders just to rubber stamp everything they do. Um, so those, those are okay. things I would uh, suggest. Excellent. That's excellent. So I want to bring Jamie Brennan on, who's a candidate for the Board of Education here in Frederick. And, 
you know, Jamie is one of millions, maybe tens of thousands, who are going to be running for Board of Ed seats who who are concerned and the parents are behind you in terms of some of these changes, like Dr. Lee has mentioned. What do you want to see accomplished here directly in Frederick County? I want to see some work towards improving our test scores. Um, as um, Dr. Lee indicated, they're here in Frederick County, they're abysmal. Um, we need to make sure to stop the slide. Um, we had already been declining as a as a school system for several years, and COVID accelerated that. Uh, we need to make sure that the curriculum that is being taught our children is wholesome, is value neutral as far as we are not pushing a political agenda that all families, particularly including families of faith, feel comfortable sending their children to school. Um, We need to get back to science-based reading and math. And, um, you know, we need to look at expanding options uh, for participation in our other programs, like our career and technology program, um, you know, bringing back practical skills so that we have, we're putting out children into the world who are ready and able to join the workforce to, if, to go on to, to secondary education if they would like to, but to be prepared to be adults and take on adult responsibilities, take on um, their civic and social responsibilities. So we need to realign the board, realign our system so that we are producing those kinds of adults and people and, you know, make sure that we are, our children can read and write. <laughs> Good citizens who are, are productive in society. Excellent. Um, any, uh, any question that you have for Dr. Lee? Um, I would like to know how you, how you did navigate some of those challenges uh, with because I, I think you know we will have some challenges on our board as far as having a majority. Um, I hope more conservative candidates run. I hope that there's some uh, that we get some support. We could really use some, some community support to help us and to help their campaign. But um, how do people follow you on your campaign? How do they support you? Uh, my website is jb four the number four b o e dot com. Um, and they can reach out to Jamie at jb4boe.com. And Jamie's spelled J-A-I-M-E for, and you know, my parents had to be difficult. Um, <laughs> so, but I would like to know kind of how did you navigate some of those instances where you, you kind of are in the minority? And we're hoping we're not going to be. we got three seats up for election. So we'd hope that that's, you know, we have some opportunity to make some changes. Um, but if you are in the minority, how can you exercise what, power you do have in that instance and in, let me just be clear you have seven seats on this board correct seven total seats so three would never even even if you filled all three seats which is not uh, statistically probable you would still be in the minority after this cycle no, well we have one board member okay. currently who's on who is ideologically aligned um more with the kind of conservative principles okay so if we were able to take these three other seats um, we we could have a majority at that gotcha. point, but okay. certainly having having the ability to get on would be good. Okay, very good. So we've got just a couple minutes left, uh, Lee. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, really, just uh, getting to know your fellow board members. 
um, and engaging in some alternative um, trainings uh, might be helpful. I mean, beyond what your school board associate, you know, the traditional school board association might recommend. Um, and uh, it's it's tough though when when you when there is a board majority and board minority um, dynamic, you know, um, superintendents can capitalize on that, and they often do. Um, and some prefer to have it that way, right, because it's constantly divided. So try to identify those points of commonality that, you know, across the spectrum, no matter if someone's a liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is, what can we all agree upon, you know, that needs to take place and keep focusing on student achievement and data. Um, this is so important. Get out into your schools. Um, go visit. You don't have to have your superintendent there to visit with you. Uh, so often they try to roadblock that. That way and then you're getting again a dog and pony show when you go and not the real scoop um, and and really set some high um, um, goals uh, take a look at those goals that you use when evaluating your superintendent you know to make sure that student achievement is at the focus of everything that is being done and that data and educational research and not subjective uh, opinions and you know ideological viewpoints are, are what are being pushed through the district um, that's the danger and what you'll find is that so often um, the things that are being talked about, what we need to do for kids and so forth, they're not backed by research. <laughs> they're not backed by rigorous educational peer-reviewed research. Um, and as a board member, you have a duty, I believe, to push back on that and say, you know, um, show me the data, show me the research, show me how this is affecting uh, student achievement, um, and keep that focus on student achievement. And, and the business of the board should be fully focused on that. Okay, and just in this last minute, I got that about a 30-second response for you. What what do you say about warding off the power and control of the union? How do you get them to stop doing harm, frankly, in some of their decision-making, COVID being an example of that? I would say this is where sticking with your constituents is so important. So often after we become elected, we don't stay in touch. So hold office hours, remain accessible, encourage members of the public to come in and make public comments relentlessly so that your board can get focused on what the public's asking them to do. Utilize that public commenting section um, and call your friends in and family members and whoever, you know, to come in and speak and say what the public wants because that is the duty of the board to meet what those what taxpayers are asking us to do and what the law is asking us to do well said dr tavia lee it's been such an honor to have you with us calling in from the left coast bright and early this morning thank you so much jamie brennan best of luck on your on your uh quest for board of education you have my full support and endorsement everybody you've been listening to the jen charlton show please share our podcast go to wfmd.com or wfmd app and we'll see you next week here at 9 a.m. When was the last time you had freshly made ice cream or candy? Sweeties on the Creek offers a wide selection of fresh, creamy ice cream made with natural flavors. Stop in for a new fun flavor or a classic yummy favorite perched on a freshly made waffle cone. Just in, Sweeties has a huge assortment of candy, including freshly made in-store delicious chocolates. Your young ones will love all the plush toys and fun gifts, too. Sweeties on the Creek, just up from Market Street. We're scooping now.